So I don't know, Luke. It's my last Sunday, and so you're going to have a party. <laughs> I guess I could take that one of two ways, couldn't I? Pray with me as we start. Father, we open the word together now this morning, asking for your spirit to, to teach us. Father, help us to put away the cares of this week, concerns that are heavy on our hearts. Lord, may you enable us to focus, to concentrate, to listen, to heed. Change us, O oh Lord, because we've been in the presence of your people, your word, and the triune God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, through the years I have taught and preached on the topic of hospitality. It is something that you have heard from this pulpit more than one time. In fact, if you've attended the numerous weddings that have occurred here at Foothill Bible Church through the years, then you would probably recognize that I frequently make it part of the wedding sermon. I address that topic of, of hospitality with this young couple who are exchanging vows and beginning their life together. And the reason I do that is because I am so convinced that it's important for them to get their marriage started on the right foot. A Christian marriage is a hospitable marriage. And so I want to exhort and encourage them to, to build that spiritual discipline into their young lives. I've also had privilege a few years ago to speak in the chapel at the Master's Seminary and to address the seminarians there. And when that opportunity presented itself, I thought what better message to bring to men training for vocational ministry than a message on the topic of hospitality. And so I brought that message there to them and uh, it created uh, a, a certain stir and buzz actually among the student population because no one had ever spoken to them about this important topic before. And the reason that hospitality is is so important to me, so significant on my heart and mind is because I'm of the opinion that there is a near universal hesitancy in the 21st century American church to practice the ministry of hospitality. We are more connected electronically than at any time in the history of the world. And yet, we are more relationally separated and alone, I think, than at any other time in the history of the world. We live in this unique age in which we have hundreds of friends and no friends simultaneously. God is a social being. And because we have been made in his image, we too are social beings. In fact, the gospel itself is unavoidably social. For at the root of the gospel is the reconciliation of those who are alienated first from God and then from each other. And so it is the gospel of reconciliation that brings us into a loving relationship both with God our creator and with one another. 
and the fellowship of a local church. The gospel is unavoidably social. It thrills my heart that by the grace of God through the years, Foothill has grown immeasurably in the ministry of hospitality. Many of you regularly open your homes and your hearts to strangers, to those that are outside your, your immediate family circle. And that excites me like nothing else. And to those who are involved in such things, I bring to you the words of the Apostle Paul, which is to excel still more in this good deed. But others of you have yet to experience this faith-stretching, soul-satisfying, practical outworking of your Christian faith. And so for you, my exhortation is that there's no time like the present to begin to make whatever changes are necessary to be made so that you might engage in this necessary Christian ministry. As we begin to talk about hospitality this morning, let me begin for you by reading you a small excerpt from a very fine little book, and I emphasize that it is little, but it is power-packed, and it's called The Hospitality Commands by a man by the name of Alexander Strock. I commend the book to you, The Hospitality Commands by Alexander Strock. He writes the following, quote, The first Christians viewed themselves as part of a worldwide brotherhood that transcended all national, racial, and social boundaries. They knew they were a persecuted minority in an intensely hostile world. Their very survival depended on active participation in the family of brothers and sisters. Hospitality, therefore, became one of the most significant practical expressions of this worldwide family of brothers and sisters, and thus became one of the birthmarks of primitive Christianity. You cannot separate hospitality and the early Christian faith, and I am going to argue with you this morning and seek to persuade you from the scriptures that you cannot separate it from the modern Christian faith either. Church history contains a number of statements regarding the loving display of hospitality in the early centuries of the Christian church. The church began lacking buildings in which to meet. In those early centuries, the Christian church was a home-based movement, and it was often dependent upon traveling, itinerant teachers and preachers. These traveling teachers and preachers were dependent upon the hospitality of the various local congregations to provide for them to provide their material support, their provision, shelter, food, all that they needed. The centuries progressed, and we moved into the third or fourth century. Christianity became the established religion of the empire. And with that change, the pilgrim status of the Christian church was largely forgotten. 
And with it, the practice of hospitality waned as well. By the time we arrive at the early 16th century, John Calvin, mourning the demise of the ancient hospitality, stated as follows, and I quote him, This office of humanity has nearly ceased to be properly observed among men. For the ancient hospitality celebrated in histories is unknown to us, and inns now supply the place of accommodations for strangers. Calvin says that basically hotels have taken over, and no longer do the believers open their homes to others. The word hospitality and the word hospitable comes from two Greek words. The first is philos, which means loving, and the second is xenos, which means a stranger or a guest. So fundamentally, hospitality means the love of strangers or the love of guests. In fact, the the word that is the exact opposite is, is xenophobia, which is the fear of strangers, the fear of strangers. So here's what I want to do this morning in the time that we have before us. I want to bring to your attention five statements, five statements that help shape our understanding and practice of hospitality. Right? Five statements that will help shape our understanding and practice of hospitality. Now, as we begin, let me just get this off the table right up front. Some Christians are of the mistaken idea that hospitality is a spiritual gift that is given by the Spirit of God to some Christians and not to others. I have heard this more times than I can count. I don't have the gift of hospitality, or so-and-so has the gift of hospitality. People who think this way, believe this way, reason in their own minds that since they do not have the gift of hospitality, that therefore the calls to hospitality that they read or hear in the scriptures must be directed to those that do have the gift. Nothing could be further from the truth. Hospitality is not a spiritual gift. It is not a spiritual gift. So, what that means is this morning's message is directly applicable to every single person who knows and loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter your life circumstances, this message is applicable to you if you are a Christian. Okay? So, with that preamble... Let's look at the first of the five statements. And the first statement is simply this. Hospitality is a command to be obeyed. Hospitality is a command to be obeyed. Now, the biblical commands for hospitality, and I want to look with you at a number of them, are found both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And they are directed to the people of God both generally and to certain individuals specifically. So there are both general commands to hospitality and there are specific commands to hospitality. Okay? 
So let's get started. I'm going to take you all the way back into the Old Testament, all the way back to the book of Leviticus. So turn back to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19, where we will see one of the first of the general commands to the people of God with regard to hospitality. Leviticus chapter 19 and verses 33 and 34. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 and 34. And may I make an editorial insertion here? Since my time is short, I guess I can. And it's simply this. I love to hear the rustling of Bible pages. Okay? I know there are some of you who use electronic Bibles, but I can't hear you turn those pages. But I love to hear you turning Bible pages. So Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 and 34. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall love him as yourself. Now, if you were hearing or reading the book of Leviticus and in you would recall that only a few verses earlier in verse number 18, you would read the second great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the love of the stranger who is to be treated as your neighbor is, is of the essence of what it means to love God and to fulfill the great commandments of God. And so Moses says here, the words of God in his mouth, that they are to love the stranger among them. They are to love the stranger among them. Why? Because they weren't themselves were strangers and aliens. Okay, turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. And beginning in verse 17. Deuteronomy 10, beginning in verse 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Israel. Egypt, again, love of the stranger, love of the alien, love of the person who is not like you. Why? Because that was once your status. Because that was once your status. Now think with me on this. How many of you have ever come into a new church? Hmm? Can you remember what it was like when you walked through the door into a new fellowship? How alone you felt, how strange, how, how much an alien to what was going on there? And have you ever experienced the unfortunate coldness that can often come when nobody says anything to you? 
or if they do it best, it's a, it's a simple and a casual head nod or a hello, and that's the end of it. It should not be. For we should remember what it is like to come into a church and have our eyes open for, for those around us who are new among us, who are, who are, as it were, aliens or strangers to us, and extend ourselves to them, to love them. Why? Because it reflects the character of God. And we can remember ourselves what it was like once to be brand new. Love the alien, love the stranger, Moses says. Go with me to the New Testament to Romans chapter 12. Hospitality is a command to be obeyed. In Romans chapter 12, we have the transition point of Paul's epistle here. The first 11 chapters, he has been laying out systematically what he calls in chapter 16 his gospel. And so he has been teaching the gospel in, in, in the most detailed place you will ever find in the entire Bible. And then beginning in chapter 12, he transitions to, in light of the theological reality of our newness in Christ, how shall we then live? And in chapter 12, verse 2, we see the following command. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What is the will of God? What does the, the product of a transformed mind look like? What is good and acceptable and perfect in the sight of God for the people of God? Well, if you look at verse 13, which occurs in a, in a lengthy list of sort of staccato statements about what that transformed life looks like, you see at the end of verse 13 that it is practicing hospitality practicing hospitality, literally actively pursuing hospitality. I think practicing hospitality is actually under-translated. Actively pursuing hospitality. This is what it looks like to be transformed. That's the command. Be transformed. What does transformed look like? Actively pursuing hospitality. It is a command. It is a command. Further to the right in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Do not neglect. It's a present middle imperative. It's a command. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, we can only neglect something that is a duty. 
Neglect applies to duty. So unless hospitality is a duty, then, then we cannot be commanded not to neglect it. If it was an option, it wouldn't be expressed this way. It's a duty. It's a duty. And we are not to neglect it. First Peter chapter 4. Verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Aorist active imperative. The English Standard Version. Be of sound judgment or self-controlled. And further down into verse 19 falling under this imperative of, of being of sound judgment or being self-controlled, we see in verse 9, we are to be hospitable to one another without complaint. We're to be hospitable to one another without complaint. This widens the command for hospitality beyond simply those that are aliens or strangers to us and now scoops up everyone who is within a local body of Christ. All right, be hospitable to one another. The one another's refer to the believers. So we are to be hospitable to one another's, that is, those within the local church. And we're to do so without complaint, Peter says. Gaguzmas, complaint, murmurings, grumblings, complainings. We are to be hospitable without grumbling about it, without complaining about it, without murmuring about it. Okay, be Hospitable without grumbling. Back to the left, First Timothy chapter five. First Timothy chapter five. And beginning in verse nine. In fact, before we get there, go to chapter three and verse 14. which is your purpose statement for the whole epistle. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So Paul says, I'm coming, I'm, I'm hoping to be there. And to instruct you, but in case I'm delayed, in case I don't get there, I'm writing and sending this on ahead so that you'll know how you're supposed to operate within a local church. Now, over to chapter 5 and verse 9. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. Paul gives a command here. The command here is to put the widow on the list only if she meets the following criteria. What is the list? 
The list is those widows who were, what he says earlier, are widows indeed, that is, widows who have no means of financial support, that the church is now obligated to come along and to care for them, the orphans and the widows. And so there was a list of certain widows that the church undertook the the tangible material responsibilities for. But it wasn't just any old widow. It was widows who had demonstrated themselves to be faithful to the Christian faith. And so what did a faithful widow look like? Well, there's a number of things here, but the one I'm zeroing in on is in the middle of verse 10 where it says, If she has shown hospitality to strangers... Put her on the list is a command. Put her on the list if, among other things, she has demonstrated with her life a heart of hospitality, a love of the strangers. Because that is a demonstration that she is truly a Christian widow. Now, back to chapter 3. Same epistle. Chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. If any man aspires to be an elder, an overseer, it's a fine work that he aspires to. But there are criteria. Verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. An overseer then must be be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Okay? Now listen, work with me on this. There's not a command here. The verb is is day, that he must be. In other words, it is a necessity. It is not an option. An overseer must by necessity be above reproach. That's what Paul is saying here. Well, what does that look like? Is that perfection? No, it's not perfection, but it is maturity. In other words, that he's not a man who, who accusation could hang on him. With regard to his marriage, with regard to the way he handles himself in terms of temperance and prudence and so forth, in terms of his respectable nature, But here's the one to zero in on this morning. Hospitality, right? Look at it. He must be hospitable. He must be hospitable. Now, this is the evaluation of a man who would be an elder. And it is an evaluation of his life. It is an evaluation of how he manages his household. How are his children? How does he handle money? How is his marriage? It's it's all of these points of qualification and evaluation. All within his control. All within his control. So here's the point, guys. Men are qualified or disqualified for leadership among the people of God based on their spiritual maturity based on their spiritual maturity, and a man is not spiritually mature who is not hospitable. 
Let me say it again. A man is not spiritually mature who is not hospitable. This is a perfect Father's Day message. Because the responsibility for hospitality, gentlemen, pay attention to me, is not your wife's. It does not lie with her. She is your partner. She is your helpmate. The responsibility of hospitality and whether you are a hospitable home is yours. It lies with you. If you are not hospitable, you are not mature. You are not mature. And if you are not mature, you are not qualified to lead among the people of God as an elder. But this is, again, not just for elders. The elders are those among the congregation who have grown sufficiently in the faith that they can give leadership among the other believers. They're not a special class of individuals. So, hospitality, non-negotiable for leadership. Because hospitality is a command to be obeyed. It is a command to be obeyed. Second, second, hospitality is a call to love others. Secondly, hospitality is a call to love others. Now, these, these New Testament exhortations to practice hospitality, they all occur in the context of brotherly love. They occur in the context of brotherly love. So, so go with me back to Romans 12 again. Let me demonstrate this for you. Verse 10, chapter 12. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. You see it? Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. What does that look like? Well, there's a whole list of things, but by the time you get to verse 13, you'll see it's the active pursuit of hospitality. So the, the grammatical structure of chapter 12 is simply this. The command is to be transformed in your thinking. Don't think like you used to think. Think as you now are in Christ. How does that express itself? What expresses itself in brotherly love? What does brotherly love look like with shoe leather on? It looks like many, other, many things, but it also or, or cannot be divorced from hospitality. So you, you see how it's tied together. Transformed mind brings about love. Love acts, acts in a practical way in the extension of hospitality, okay? That's how the argument works. Go with me back to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. Verse 1, Hebrews 13, verse 1. Let the love of the brethren continue. Let the love of the brethren continue. How? Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Okay? That's the writer's immediate application of that statement. The answer to the let the love of the brethren continue is to don't neglect hospitality. Okay? Again, the context is love. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. 
Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Okay? Be fervent in your love. The idea here is to put forth a persistent effort to, to, to have resolve at this, to, to strain at it. Picture would be something like an Olympic athlete pushing themselves to their limits that they might grow, develop. Keep fervent in love. Push yourself in love. How? Practice hospitality. One more for you. Third John. Third John. Chapter 1. And verse 6. Third John. Verse 6. John's writing to, to Gaius here. Verse 1, he identifies that. And in verse 6, he says, they, that is, that is those who have, who have stayed with you and have come back and reported to us, they have testified to your love before the church. In other words, when they came back to the, to the fellowship where John is, they have testified before the whole church to the love of Gaius for them. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. They went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support them and so forth. Okay. But they testify about your love. How did you demonstrate your love to them? You practiced hospitality. You took them in. You sheltered them. You provided for their needs. Their needs. Okay. Write the statement down. Hospitality is gospel-driven, not works-produced. Hospitality is gospel-driven, not works-produced. It is the outflowing of the gospel in your life that has transformed you, that then causes you to extend yourself in love to others. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The love of God has been poured out within us. We now pour out that love to others through hospitality. All right, but let's be realistic about this. Hospitality is costly. Hospitality is costly. Okay? It... Certainly costs money to, to feed and, and shelter other people. There's no way around that. But it's costly in many other ways, too. But it's costly. Because Christian discipleship is costly. It requires everything. Hospitality is time-consuming. Time-consuming. You, you cannot be hospitable, not truly hospitable, if you are driven by your own agenda. Because people are going to mess it up. So it's time-consuming. Hospitality is fatiguing. If you've ever had someone in your home for an extended period of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Hospitality is fatiguing. It will wear you out. And it will force you to depend upon Christ for strength. It will also reveal just how selfish you really are. Okay? So it's costly, time-consuming, fatiguing, Here's another one. It's privacy denying. 
It is privacy denying. When, when someone is with you, they know what you're like. So your Sunday smile face, you know, transforms into your Wednesday frowny face. Okay? It's privacy denying. I just want to be alone, right? I, I'm not the only one I know who has felt that way. Just want to be alone. Occasionally, hospitality can be dangerous. It can be dangerous. It was in the first century. It can be today. So, a certain level of maturity, wisdom, prudence, for sure. But in all of this, you know, the fact that it's costly, time-consuming, fatiguing, privacy-denying, occasionally dangerous, I'm reminded of the words of King David in 2 Samuel 24, 24. When the plague is stopped, and there David wants to, to offer a, a sacrifice to the Lord. And Aruna says, I'll just give you the land, and, and, I'll, and I'll give you the oxen, and I'll, and I'll give you, the, you know, everything you need for the sacrifice. In verse 24, the king says to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. In other words, David says, it's not an offering to God if it doesn't cost me anything. And I would argue that that's true in hospitality. It's not hospitality if it doesn't cost you anything. It's not really service to Christ and a product of a transformed life if it's like, meh, it doesn't bother me. You know what? Yeah, whatever. You know, I got a hundred bucks, I'll give you two bucks. I mean, that's not an offering, that's not a sacrifice. Hospitality is a call to love, and love is expensive. Love is expensive. Third, third statement, hospitality is a centerpiece of Christian community. Hospitality is a centerpiece of Christian community. It's a command to be obeyed. It's a call to love others. Third, it's a centerpiece of Christian community. Okay, here's how it works. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. Key text. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Circle it in your Bible. We have all been placed into one body by our spirit baptism, and thus we share the common life of the spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is a key verse that points out that reality, it teaches that reality. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Christ is the baptizer who immerses us in the Spirit, and by being immersed in the Spirit, we are brought into unity with him and, each one, and one another. Okay? Ephesians chapter 3, Paul calls upon that reality. 
I'm sorry, uh, chapter 4 and verse 3, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, where Paul calls on the, the believers there to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How have we been made one in the Spirit? What is our unity of the Spirit as a result of the baptism of 1 Corinthians 12, 13? So we've been placed together in one body. Furthermore, Christ is our brother. Christ is our brother. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. For both he, that is Christ, who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he, that is Christ, is not ashamed to call them brethren. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Romans eight twenty nine. right? We have been predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ, to be like our brother. Christ is our brother. So we are one in the body. Christ is our brother. Furthermore, the church is our family. The church is our family. 250 times in the New Testament, the believers are referred to as brother or sister or brethren. It's the most popular way, the most common way to refer to the believers in the New Testament is brother, sister, or brethren. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.17, Honor all people, love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the king. The church is our family. Again, here from Strzok. He writes, quote, Sadly, by the end of the third century, such endearing terminology, brother, sister, brethren, began to disappear among Christians. This coincides with the growth of the institutional church. About the only time that we say brother or sister is when we can't remember their name. <laughs> we don't think familiarly with each other. Hey, brother, how you doing? It's David. <laughs> right? But that was not once true. Once brother, sister, brethren was, a, was an endearing term of affection because they realized how close they were as a family. And see, when, the, when a local church begins to understand the, the profound theological truth of the oneness in the spirit that we have, that's when our love for one another begins to overflow. And hospitality is a centerpiece of that love. It is a centerpiece of that love. Paul writes to the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thess, chapter 4, 9 and 10. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. To excel still more. Listen, their love of the brethren was widely known throughout Greece. And yet Paul says, don't rest on your laurels. What you're doing is good, but excel still more. 
Hospitality is a centerpiece of Christian community. Four. Four. Hospitality is a characteristic in which we grow. Hospitality is a characteristic in which we grow. Like every other aspect of the Christian life, we are called to a spirit-empowered striving by which we grow in our obedience to the Word of God, which results in an increasing likeness to the image of Jesus Christ. This is the Christian life. We could say it another way like this. Practicing hospitality is part of our growth in sanctification. Practicing hospitality is part of our growth in sanctification. Now, hospitality is more than just simply inviting someone into your home. It is more than simply inviting someone into your home, but it is not less than that. But it is not less than that. In other words, you are not genuinely hospitable unless you open your home to people. Okay, let me say it again. Opening your home is an act of hospitality, but it does not exhaust the commands for hospitality. But you have not begun to grow in hospitality unless and until you have opened your home to others. Again, back to those wedding sermons. All you that I've married in the last 10 years, you probably heard me say this. It's not the size of your home. It is the size of your heart that will determine how generous you are in this vitally important ministry. It is not the size of your home. Oh, I can't, I, I just live in a teeny little house. It is not the size of your home. It is the size of your heart that will determine it. Now, because hospitality is the outworking of a transformed mind, right? Romans 12 and verse 2. Some have made greater progress in this area than others. As we look around the congregation and don't do that, but, but figuratively speaking... Okay, it's the outworking of the transformed mind. It's, it's, a, it's an attribute of, of growth in the likeness of Christ. It's, it's part of the process of sanctification. And there are those who have been striving, you know, under the power of the Spirit longer and have made greater progress. But nobody has mastered it. Nobody has mastered it. None of us have yet arrived in glory. So that means... None of us here, no matter how hospitable we are and, and how much progress we have made in the Christian life, in this particular aspect of the Christian life, we're not there yet. We're not arrived. There's still room to grow. We need to seek the Spirit's help, and we need to excel still more. We need to stretch ourselves with regard to extending hospitality beyond our comfort zone. Okay? Now, for some... It's just going to be to begin. For others, you're beyond the begin, but, but you can't rest there. You've got to keep striving, pressing on, keep, keep you know, leaning into this. But for those who have yet to begin, let me ask, offer some practical tips on how to begin, okay? Those of you that have begun, you've already figured this stuff out. But for those that haven't, let me offer you some practical tips to get started here. So here they are. I'm just going to go through them really quick. Just seven of them. 
Make a list of people you want to invite into your home after church. Just start locally in the fellowship. Okay? Make a list of people you would like to invite into your home after church. Number two, clean your home and prepare your meal on Saturday. And then either put it in the crock pot, put it in the freezer, do whatever you got to do. Okay, now let me just back up. This is beginning to sound like this is the wife's responsibility, doesn't it? But it's not the wife's responsibility, is it, gentlemen? So who's going to help make the list? Who's going to give leadership in making of the list? Not your wife. Okay, that's what you're going to do in consultation with her. Who's going to clean the house? Yes, that's right. You are going to clean the house. Or you're certainly going to help clean the house. And do whatever you need to do to help prepare the meal. And, and listen, it's not about the food. It's not about the food. If it's about the food you're entertaining, then it's entertainment. Three, collect and file inexpensive recipes. Or get dominoes on speed dial. Four, purchase a guest book. Purchase a guest book. It is very, very encouraging to, to go through a guest book years later and, and see that the people the Lord has brought through your life and that have been into your home. Five, be interested in people's lives and plan some questions ahead of time that will draw them out. Otherwise, you will sit and look at each other. Some people, you know, are good conversationalists. Other people are not so good. You need to plan ahead. Most people like to talk about themselves if you ask the right question. Okay? So plan your questions and draw them out. Six, set aside a prophet's room for traveling missionaries or needy college students. All right? 2 Kings 4.10, the Shunammite woman, like she did for Elisha. Set aside a place, have a guest bed, pull out couch, whatever. Seven, remember you're not there to entertain, but to demonstrate hospitality, so invite your guests to enter into your family. If you do family devotions at night, have them participate with you. If you sing before you eat, have them sing with you. Whatever it is, you know, whatever your Christian family traditions are, have them enter in. You don't have to, like, alter your life just because they're there. Bring them into your life. Bring them into your life. Let them see what a, what a Christian home looks like. Number five. Five and finally. Hospitality is the soil in which the gospel grows. Hospitality is the soil in which the gospel grows. God the Father welcomes us into his family and to eat at his table. The Bible is replete with that metaphor. The very gospel itself is God the Father reaching out to us when we were strangers, alienated from God, and inviting us in 
to dine with him. Hospitality is a gospel activity. It emulates God. It displays and reflects the character of God because it reaches out to unwanted, needy people who cannot reciprocate. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. One good meal for another. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In other words, this is not a dinner party for those that you expect to invite you back to a dinner party. It is an expression of Christian love to others who may or may not be able to respond or, or know enough to respond. Third, hospitality opens your life up to your friends, to your neighbors, and to your coworkers, and it gives them a glimpse of what it means to live as a Christian. It's a very powerful evangelistic tool to have people in your home and to see Christianity. Most people who are outside the Christian faith have only a caricature of Christianity, often formed by television, and it is way off the mark. They don't know what real Christians are like. Invite them in and show them. Invite them in and show them. Fourth, D, whatever. Sharing a meal together is a very intimate experience and it provides a natural place to have conversations about eternity. It's, I mean, breaking bread together is a very intimate activity and, and the conversation just flows and, and, and it's surprising how often the, the conversation will flow to eternal things. I think that's why Paul and the other apostles practiced a house-to-house teaching ministry. It's because they would, they would go to the, to the people's houses and the people would invite their friends and their family and their neighbors and, and then they would hear the word of the Lord over a meal. Fifth, I think, taking a needy person into your home Okay, so this is, you know, kind of maybe another level, but taking a needy person into your home tangibly demonstrates real care and concern. It treats them as a person, not an evangelistic project. Okay, you take a college student in, you take in uh, someone who, for whatever reason, needs a place. They're now a person. And you're, and you're caring about them as a person. And your gospel preaching will be a lot more powerful rather than be warmed, be filled, and be gone. Right? Which James criticizes. Finally, hospitality stands behind the church's early involvement in caring for the poor and the needy. 
Springing up around the fourth century was the early founding of hospitals and hospices. Okay, they come from the same Greek word. And it was by these that the Christian church showed in very practical ways the principle of hospitality, and it was, it was applied to, to invalids and to weary travelers. Okay? Hospitals and hospices are a Christian invention because they're the overflow of the love of the stranger. All right. But now we understand what hospitality is. We understand why it's so vital to the health and life of the Christian church. So now we need to pray that God would help us grow in obedience to this necessary command. We need to evaluate our lives in terms of our calendar, our finances, our stewardship of our possessions and so forth and make whatever change has to be made. In the power of the Spirit. And here's what's really neat about all of this. If you will trust God in this and extend yourself in dependence on Him, next year, when you look at your life, you will be amazed you will be amazed at the progress you have made in the Christian faith in this vital area. May God's Spirit apply the truth of his word individually to each and every one of us in exactly the place we need to hear it. Let's pray. Our Father how hospitable you are toward us. How you extend yourself to us in a costly love without thought of any return. You open wide your arms of fellowship to us. You invite us to, to feast at your table. You sent your son to make it a certainty. And he died to deliver us from our bondage to sin and guilt. And Father, our hearts have been filled with your spirit and love overflows through him. And, and Father, this morning, sitting here, after, after our time together, there's, there can be barely a one who doesn't want to grow in this, this expression of Christian love. So Father, help us. Help us to fulfill our desires, uh, to carry out our, and follow through on our, on our best thoughts with regard to these things. I pray, Lord, that the concerns and cares of this life and this week that we're now head into would not sweep this all away quickly and we find ourselves back in that same rut. How we thank you, Father, for the spirit of hospitality in this local fellowship and, and how many of us have been the recipients of of the amazing love and care and concern of brothers and sisters. And how we delight in, in being able to use that terminology, brother, sister. And how we desire to grow. Father, how we recognize if we are to, to make an impact on the city of Upland and beyond, it will be impossible, devoid of a hospitable spirit. And so help us, your people, O oh Lord. We beg you in Jesus' name.
Amen. Happy Father's Day, men. Sermon was for you. Go forth and and do.